the rock doesn't really care if you succeed on it or not. Like the mountains are so much bigger than us and we can just show up and be as prepared as possible and mitigate our risks as much as possible so that we're in control of our safety to the extent that we can be. everybody, Emily Abadi here coming to you from the AG studio. You are listening to episode 201 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride towards your own big potential and, of course, have some fun along the way. For episode 201, I am chatting with pro climber Sasha DeJulian. We dive right in to this discussion with a conversation about being transparent about your goals. Plus, she also tells me about falling in love at first sight with climbing. (laughs) From six years old, Sasha has been a climbing phenom. She's also taken quite the unconventional route in her career, going to college at Columbia in New York while simultaneously making a big name for herself in the industry. We also chat about navigating bullying and disordered eating, which Sasha says is rampant and climbing since it's a gravity-based sport. This really brings me back to the conversation I had last year with climbing pro Kai Leitner. And lastly, we talk about injury and how Sasha navigated hip surgery during the pandemic that left her feeling isolated and alone and really, really struggling through, as she puts it, some dark times. So grateful for this combo. Sasha and I have been trying to make this happen for a really long time. As one can imagine, when someone is off and on expeditions all the time, it makes syncing up to pod a little bit difficult, but grateful that we got it on the books, that this episode is now in the feed and happy to bring it to you. A huge, huge thank you. So much love to all the hurdlers that came out in Los Angeles over the weekend. To say that it was a joy to spend some time with you would be the biggest understatement ever. Next up, some news coming ASAP, I promise, about Boston. But do me a favor. If you're going to be in Boston, you may want to think about holding some time for me either Thursday evening, April 14th, or Saturday, April 16th at 5 p.m. I promise when I have the details to offer you, you will be the first people to know. Make sure you're following along with Hurdle over on socials at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi. And if you aren't doing so yet, subscribe to the weekly Hurdle newsletter. Stay in the loop with what's going on with the show, where my head's at, get my favorite gear and podcast and music and book picks and so much more. The link to do that is in the show notes. And with that, Let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Sasha DeJulian. She is a pro climber, pro and world champion climber. How are you doing today, Sasha? 
I'm doing so well, Emily. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm so good. I'm so excited to sit down with you. I feel like this has been forever, like fo- like Sandlot style forever in the making. <laughs> Our stars are finally aligned. I, finally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I'm so excited that we were able to make the stars align. I'm going to jump into this with you like on the quick. Is that cool with you? Let's go. Okay. So you wrote a post on Medium not all that long ago. And in the post, you wrote this sentence. I'd rather speak about my smaller goals than my bigger ones because it feels less risky of letting others down if I fail. I think about this all the time. Can we can we talk about this a little bit? Because do we actually think, like genuinely, if we take a step back, that other people are that invested and care that much that if we quote unquote fail, they're going to be like, oh, that person is such like a waste of space. It's such a good point. And first of all, thanks for reading my baby medium page. I missed writing and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start a blog. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that question though. Like, do people actually even remember? Because I think that we're all pretty self-absorbed in our own orbit to an extent. Then I don't know. Sometimes when you put a goal out there, it feels more real than when you don't put it out there, that there's an accountability that can really help you in achieving it. And so it's kind of like once you can get past that hurdle, pun intended for this podcast, and and just let your, your circle in on what your goal is, then I have found that I try harder. Like I I feel more accountable whether or not people actually care or not. I don't know. And I don't know why it can feel so intimidating to be like, I want to go and climb the hardest climb ever achieved by a woman or something like that. Like, because there's a side of it that I temper away from because of fear of feeling arrogant, of fear of not necessarily being able to uphold that goal or what if my intentions change and and then someone judges me because I've changed paths and I'm not still charting forward on that. And then I'll start asking. It's like, do you want to open the bag of questions or not? Yeah. And I guess it's just weighing whether it's worth it or not for that extra accountability. Yeah. No, I hear that. I mean, I'm a really big runner. And I remember before Chicago Marathon 2019, I put out what felt like a really impossible goal. But what I really knew deep in my gut is that my goal was even faster than the goal that I shared with the world. So I hear you. Like Sometimes I feel like we kind of temper what we're willing to let other people in on because we're scared of that. Like we're scared of quote unquote failing publicly. But sometimes, I don't know, lately I'm kind of like, go big, fail big. Like what's the worst thing that can happen? That's such an interesting point though. It's like you set your goal out there. It was almost like you took a dip into the shallow end rather than letting everyone in the deep end with you. (laughs) And there, there must be some psychology behind it. Like there's also in climbing, like we have a really precious community where you're almost like, if you're a woman, especially you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, because as soon as you start setting these big audacious goals and saying what you're going to go and achieve, you're pegged as like maybe arrogant or whatever. And then 
as soon as you're not saying like what you want to achieve or not, or like taking time off from climbing, it's like, well, what has Sasha D. Julian done lately? And it's like, well, it's been a month. So I think that there is just this tug and pull in society in general that I experience in climbing. And that could be like a whole other subject, but I relate it to goals and, and letting yourself be vulnerable because when you don't have this space to be vulnerable in the world that you're orbiting, then it's really hard to want to be vulnerable. Yeah. In more of my digging into Sasha's digital presence, I saw that you wrote the sentence on your website. If I were to believe in love at first sight, climbing would be the supportive evidence. So give us some insight into your love at first sight with climbing, which correct me if I'm wrong, but I know that I'm not started at six years old. Yeah, I um I love that you dug up that quote. I don't even remember it that well, but it sounds just like me, so I believe it. My brother had a birthday party at a climbing gym in Alexandria, Virginia at this place called Sport Rock, which still exists. It's uh right off Eisenhower for those of you in Northern Virginia. And it, he was a hockey player, we're like Irish twins, like he's a year older than me. And it was his whole hockey team and me. And I was just so fiercely competitive with my older brother, Charlie. And to the point that like he wasn't competing, but I always was. I just remember a, not that this should be like a stepping stone for passion, but I was better than the boys. And I was like, sweet, found my sport. But I was like in control. And I distinctly remember that because at the time I was a figure skater too. And that was kind of like, the path that my mom thought for me was my brother played ice hockey and I figure skated and did ballet. And then at the birthday party, like it was kind of like climbing. If you want to succeed upward on the wall, then it's up to you. And that the, like the, the level of intricacy of like what I thought of climbing didn't necessarily dawn on me as a six-year-old. I just loved it and I wanted to go back. And so I joined like their junior team program, which was this program that met each Wednesday and Saturday and um, Wednesdays after school, Saturday mornings. And then about eight to 12 months into doing this little program with like kids around the tri-state area, I walked in on a Saturday morning with my mom and there is this youth regional championship taking place. And I had like never known of climbing as a sport, frankly, like I knew of it as my hobby and this thing that I love to do. Um, and then my mom kind of like convinced the organizers to let me compete because I hadn't done any of like the qualifying regional events to qualify for like youth regionals. And I competed in the 11 and under category. I was seven. And I won my category, which, um, you know, at the time was far, far less competitive than it is these days. Like there are so many kids who climb these days and granted this was over 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, that, that was like the, the spawning of my competitive career as a climber. No big deal. Just like showing up on the spot and becoming like, you know, the one to take it all. <laughs> In 11 and under. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, but still, like, give yourself some credit. This is a big deal. And I mean, that moment spawned what would become, like, 
to this day, a lasting love affair with this sport. So obviously pre 11 and under starting from the get go and excelling. But when did you truly feel as though, okay, this isn't just something that I like to do. This is something that I'm really, really good at. Yeah, I know. That's a great question. And the love affair has gone through ups and downs like any good relationship. When I was 11, I won my first youth continental championship in Mexico City. And that was my first like big international win. Um, The year prior to that, I had made the youth uh, national team, which had qualified me to compete in the continental championships. And right after that, I had my first like sponsor, which was this climbing endemic company called Mad Rock. And um, I remember that my, my parents, like my whole family didn't climb. And I was constantly kind of in this like tug and pull of like proving myself and feeling this need to prove myself, even though I don't know if that was like an actual need or just like in my mind. But when I was in Toronto visiting my family and it was like, I think it was like Passover or something, my whole mom's side of the family is Jewish. I was like, I'm a professional climber now. <laughs> and and like granted my first sponsorship, like it was, it was just product that I was given as a 12 year old. And then I was given, I, I negotiated the entire thing. I never let to this day, my parents like aware of any contract I've ever Wait, done. at 12? Yeah, but there wasn't much negotiation. It was like, I was like, this product budget, okay, well, how about $1,000 for first place at, you know, these competitions? Is that legal? (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I mean, climbing isn't a collegiate, it wasn't a collegiate sport. Now it's not part of the collegiate league either. It's like a, it has a collegiate series, but it won't prevent you from, so yeah. I mean, as a climber, I was really at this like new frontier though of like, climbing becoming more of this like sport that you could make a living from. And as a 12 year old, I was very far from making a living in climbing, but I was taking myself really seriously. (laughs) I mean, as you should, it's really exciting at age 12 when someone's like, we're going to give you all this stuff just to do something that you already love to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was like, I just wanted to, to be a part of the community so badly because I always felt in school like this other, like it was this, no one at my, at my school climbed and it was, um, climbing was really like a new sport. Whenever I said I climbed, people would be like, what's that? And then I'd like explain it. And so I never talked about climbing growing up, like at school, um, I did other sports too, like field hockey and track and field and stuff like that. Um, And if people asked me about climbing, I would change the subject. Uh, I just, I didn't like talking about, you know, as like an adolescent girl, like the last thing you want is something that makes you feel like a total other. And that's kind of like what climbing felt like. But then once I left school and I was in this climbing community, it felt like home. And I had all these friends that it felt like this, this connected language and the shared passion that my climbing friends kind of became my much closer community than my school friends. My journey with climbing to now, it's like funny because I'm like so proud to talk about it. And like my mission ultimately in climbing is just get more people to go out and try it because I'm obviously biased, but I think it's been a really empowering journey for me. Um, that I like, I remember a couple years ago, I went back and I spoke 
at my high school and we had what was called like it was crossroads or something it was where like all the seniors hung out and if you're a cool junior you could like go in but like as a high schooler I would like circumvent the circumference like like I would not touch my foot on the rug of crossroads when I was like (laughs) not ready like I was just like I don't know and then I was like standing in the middle of crossroads talking and I was like this is really really ironic (laughs) well you mentioned you mentioned the the not wanting to feel like a total other and it's interesting that you said that because there have been moments within the climbing community where you have voiced that you have felt like a total other specifically when it comes to your looks and a little bit about how you're built so talk to us and this is usually a question that i i say for the end of the show but i do feel like i want to bring it up now to lean us into this discussion so someone comes to your Instagram page and they see a pro climber with something like 475,000 followers and growing. But when you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I've wrestled with imposter syndrome through most of my career feeling like I don't um, necessarily look the part of a climber. I've been told since I was a really young kid, like, oh, you're a rock climber. That's surprising. You don't look like a climber. And it's, I think I got to the point of like, well, what does a climber look like? Because I, you know, have these accolades. I've had multiple national championship titles, world championship title, all these outdoor um, achievements, yet I'm still told I don't look like a climber. So let's like consider what that looks like. But yeah, I've gone through a lot within the climbing community. Um, My success has been attributed to me being an attractive blonde girl, which I'm like, (laughs) if only that were the case, like that would be pretty easy. Um, And also open the, the floodgates to a lot of people much, much prettier than me. But I, I guess like also weight and the disordered eating and being singled out online by by cyber bullies from people who are total keyboard trolls to people who are actually other colleagues and professional athletes in my sport. Um, and from when I was at, when I was 18, I went through my own kind of experience with disordered eating and and fitting into this World Cup circuit of what it what it did look like to be a competitive climber was being incredibly rail thin and meticulous about everything that you eat. Um, and I, I think that a lot of sports can kind of relate to that as gravity related, but climbing, like literally what you weigh is what you pull up the wall. And I think it took me a long time to realize that the, the stronger you are, then the more capacity you have to pull the weight and, and the long-term progression is going to be that much stronger if you just like put in the work to training. But when I was in high school, I kind of like unintentionally started losing weight when I was really kicking up training towards this world championship goal. And I started succeeding even, even more. And I started coming into more of this limelight and with this limelight online in the climbing community came hate. And it was like this new level of hate that I had never experienced because up until that point, that point for the first, I guess, over a decade of my career, um, I, I, w- I was like growing up in the sport and I was like 
always collecting people's opinions of my mom, for instance, was like such a dedicated support system. And she dressed nicely, like I wasn't like some like heiress to any sort of fortune at all. And I was I was paying a lot of my own climbing trips myself. But my mom was like, people would make fun of her even and call her Gucci mom and stuff like that. And and she was like, I didn't actually own a single piece of Gucci for the record. <laughs> I, I think we are always kind of judged as outsiders in that regard, which is kind of ironic because climbing was my safe space away from being an outsider in like middle school, high school. But it was also this place that I never really did fit in because I was this city kid who loved this outdoor origin sport. And I was trying to find my my place in climbing too. That yeah, when I when I started succeeding at a higher level in climbing, I would see like comments online like, bet she doesn't even get her period, ha ha ha. And like um just Skeletor, I bet I could climb that hard if I was so light. And it was just totally negated everything that I was dedicating my life to, to like 6 a.m. before school, hitting the gym and then being at school and then leaving school and going straight to the climbing gym for practice. So I was working really hard and and it was like a blow to the gut to be just everything you put into this sport is like related to what you weigh. And then contrarily, as I went through puberty and as my body kind of changed, I was then judged for being like not super real thin. And then like even another pro climber um, was like who had been at the front of calling me anorexic was like the first to lead the charge of making fun of me being fat. And here's like, okay, maybe I weighed like 115 pounds, not 95. And I'm being targeted as being overweight in my sport publicly online. And so I think when you have disordered eating, and and this happened to me when I was in my late teens, early 20s, it doesn't just go away. And right now, like I'm really, really passionate about nutrition and learning what's the optimal status for me Um, and working with trainers and and something that's new to climbing-ish is like more cross training. And historically, people have always just said to improve at climbing, you just climb. And I was even at the gym the other day. And there was this younger girl who joined me and my friend who were doing a core workout. And she was like, are you guys sure that doing this helps your, you improve climbing? And I was like, tell me one sport where cross training doesn't have an additive value. And so it's just been interesting because that's been like at the foundation of why I'm starting this company that's a nutrition bar company called Send Bars is because I've always made my own bars and been really into nutrition, but also been let down by like what's available for healthy on the go on expeditions and stuff like that. I want to learn and grow in this arena because it's really been um, a journey for me with my own like confidence in climbing and that pertains to like weight and what you eat and yeah being judged for wearing makeup uh being judged for having I don't have style for attempting style you know and like things like that like it's anything that I've done I've felt like I've been criticized and and it's not by everyone it's just like you hear if there's 99% of of positivity fed back to you, 
you're going to hear that 1% of negativity and that sticks. And it like, I think it's a fallacy to think that, you know, words can't hurt and that you're too big to care. Cause I mean, me growing and climbing and becoming um, more quote unquote famous in this niche industry, um, I've been ripped apart <laughs> and I've had to grow some pretty callous skin around it. When you, I would say, and you referenced that it's kind of like a lifelong journey, but when you look back at the time when you really learned how to get over the hurdle of disordered eating, what would you credit was the thing or maybe the person that really helped you get over that hurdle? I started my first year at Columbia and I had come off the heels of climbing for a year without being in school. I deferred my acceptance for a year. I had won the world championships that year and really focused on some big like outdoor single pitch climbing achievements. And then I went to this event uh, that was an invitational competition and I ruptured my A2 pulley and my ring finger, which is like right here. And my entire palm just like spasmed out and I couldn't close my hand. And so for a normal, you know, non-climber, it's just a finger injury. But for a climber, it's kind of a really big devastating moment that you have to take two to three months off. That was in August and I started at Columbia in September. I guess I missed my orientation week because I was I was climbing. That event bled into orientation week. But then I remember... In high school, I had such an atypical experience at school. My uh, high school boyfriend was another pro climber. He was Norwegian. Who would like I would just go off and climb with him every day. And so for college, I was pretty disengaged at high school, and all I wanted to do was climb and get straight A's so I could get through it and satisfy my parents and um, just graduate and move on with life. And so college, I was like, I'm really excited to have a college experience and like to engage with what that might look like. Of course, it never was like that typical because I, through college, I was traveling like Thursday evenings, I would fly to like Europe or Asia or wherever, and I would come back Monday night. But for the first semester, at least I had this finger injury and I, I just, I guess it was like exposure to normalcy. Um, my entire community up until college was I mean, I can't think of many female climbers that I was surrounded by and looked up to that didn't have eating disorders, which is wild to think about. And I hope it's changing everything. Like I lived with this woman in Austria and Innsbruck when we were competing on the World Cup circuit and she weighed her oatmeal and weighed everything on a scale. And so I did too. And, and it's just like habitually, like that became the norm for me. And when I was in college, like people were going to Magnolia Bakery and getting like banana bread pudding. And I was like, what is that? This is godly. Um, and I think just like letting my body be still, it adjusted. And and there was like a period of time where my body and hormones were all catching up to me. Like I had a very delayed puberty and stuff like that. And so my body changed. And then I had to kind of relearn how to climb with my new body. And instead of pushing against it to revert to my prepubescent body, I had to accept cross-training and learning more about how to strengthen my body and be like a woman who climbed. 
um, rather than like a young girl who climbed. Taking a break from today's episode to give some love to my sponsors. First up, Daily Harvest. Now, I think that we can all probably agree that it can be difficult to make sure you are getting the right amount of fruit and vegetables in your diet. This year, one of my big goals is to change that to really focus on a more plant-based style of eating. And that's why I'm keeping my freezer stocked with Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest is the easiest way to get more fruits and veggies into my day every single day. They have my back with delicious food that's good for me and good for the planet. Daily Harvest delivers delicious harvest bowls, flatbreads, smoothies, and more, all built on organic fruits and vegetables right to your door. And it stays conveniently fresh in your freezer. My go-tos, the broccoli and cheese harvest bowl, the tomato and zucchini minestrone soup. Oh my God, the tomatillo and pepper flatbread, chef's kiss with a little bit of cheddar cheese. It is divine. Daily Harvest, it literally takes minutes to prepare and never uses any preservatives, added sugar, or artificial anything. And that goes for every single one of their products. Feel good about what you're doing for yourself and the planet. Head on over to dailyharvest.com slash hurdle pod to get up to $40 off your first box. Again, that is dailyharvest.com slash hurdle pod for up to $40 off your first box today. Dailyharvest.com slash hurdle pod. Also got to give some love to my friends at Whoop, a digital fitness and health coach that tracks key physiological metrics and provides detailed, actionable feedback to optimize your performance via a monthly membership. I've been wearing my Whoop strap for what feels like forever since April 2019. And to put it simply, it just makes me want to be a better me and focus on healthier habits. Among my favorite features is the Sleep Coach, which analyzes sleep duration, quality, efficiency, and consistency every single night, and then provides ideal bed and wake times to help improve my sleep routine and performance the next day. Thanks to the Whoop journal feature, I also know what habits like eating too close to bedtime or slacking on my daily hydration intake can really impact my overall recovery score. And honestly, the gamification is fun and it keeps me honest. I am hooked on my Whoop data and I know that you could be too. Get in on Whoop today with this exclusive offer for Hurdle listeners. Head on over to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com and use the code HURDLE15 to unlock 15% off any Whoop membership plus get a free Whoop 4.0 strap. Again, that is whoop.com and use the code HURDLE15 for 15% off any membership today. How do you navigate the negative voice inside your head? Because you mentioned before even how easy it is to let that one negative comment be the thing that jumps off the page in a sea of hundreds and hundreds of positive sentiments. So for you and your inner voice, how have you learned to become a little bit more of your own hype woman instead of letting that naysayer inside take over? Yeah. At the end of the day, like I think there's a couple of things there. The community that I surround myself, now I'm much, much more particular about people that I consider my friends. 
and not in a ruthless way, but I'm really affected by energies. And if I don't get a good positive energy from someone that feels supportive and collaborative and encouraging, then I'll consider them an acquaintance, but I'll definitely be very protective with my space. So my core, like my core community has definitely shrunk to the point that I feel like everyone who I consider a friend is like a very genuine, got your back, will share the common enemies, stand up for me, I'll stand up for you, like loyalty is very important. But then on the performative side, like for me, really feeling confident about what I'm doing, like I'm putting my best foot forward, I'm putting my head down, I'm grinding, I know that everything I do is my personal best and what comes out of that is going to be what I can put out. And when my when my dad was alive, he always said like when he would drop me off at the airport if I was going off on a climbing expedition or something and he'd be like have fun, be safe and do your best. And so that mantra is really like stuck with me and been my guiding light for how I approach what I do in my everyday but also like when I go off on these dangerous expeditions it's like I guess be safe could be number one or it could be safety third like whatever way you want to look at it but being safe and having fun is really important and then and then doing your best because at the end of the day like the rock doesn't really care if you succeed on it or not like the mountains are so much bigger than us and we can just show up and and be as prepared as possible and mitigate our risks as much as possible so that we're in control of our safety to the extent that we can be and and show up, you know? I love that idea. The idea that like the rock doesn't care how you show up. It's just that you show up at all. And I certainly share those sentiments when it comes to the run. It's like you can be having the worst day or the best day, but the run is always going to be there for you. And the same goes for you and your sport. So to hear it in that light is just, it's really beautiful. I love the fact that sports are so transcendent through life and also what that sport is because there's such a connective tissue there to your mentality as an athlete and and as just anyone who is really passionate about what you do. Yeah. But I don't know if like the negative voice ever goes away because I have good days and I have bad days and on the bad days if I have a busy schedule, I just try and like maybe throw on some makeup and dress like I care and not like hide it. But I think that the way that you show up, whether you're in a good mental space or not, can kind of help dictate how you handle it. And this last like two years, I went through double hip reconstruction And so I did have a lot of time with myself and reevaluating priorities and everything. I think that my mental game had to become a lot stronger and more confident because I was stuck with myself, like most of the world. I mean, through COVID, it was like its own thing too. But there were basically six months where I couldn't do absolutely anything. Yeah. Two things to double click on here. The first thing to double click on is I'm totally with you on sometimes you just need to put yourself together to have a day, even if putting yourself together to have a day is you walking like 12 feet into your office or your desk that's strategically placed in the corner. I definitely had my fair share of days like that over the past two years. And then man, a double hip reconstruction. So many people listening to this show have been sidelined with injury before themselves. Talk to us about 
how you mentally handled what was, I'm sure, a severely isolating experience. Yeah, man, it was dark sometimes. It was pretty dark. But I found light for sure and purpose in a new way. I For the like two to three years, probably three years, but mounting up to the last two years before 2020, I had really bad hip, like chronic pain. And uh, I didn't know what was going on. And I saw like a, a whole array of physical therapists ranging from it being a tight psoas to it being in my head. And um, in February of 2020, right before going on an expedition to this place in Mexico to go and climb this 3,000 foot first female ascent on uh, El Gigante, which is this gigantic monolith. I finally, I, I couldn't sleep at night. Like there's like two months where everything had just like compounded. And I was like, I, my femur head felt like it was like popping out of the socket. And so I got an MRI, found out I had hip dysplasia and, and I was either faced with a hip replacement, which would be essentially career ending because you can't be a professional climber. You can climb, but you can't be a professional climber with a hip replacement from a mobility side, but also from a safety side of like the remoteness of my expeditions. And yeah, for obvious reasons. And then there was this double PAO surgery, which could happen on both sides of like, essentially, uh, the surgeon would go in, cut my pelvic bone in four places, shave down the femur head, adjust the, the pelvic bone over the new femur head, the newly shaved down femur head, cinch it down with six uh, six inch screws. And then I had to basically, I couldn't even have like a 90 degree angle of my hips for two months and no weight bearing or anything. And, and then do it all again on the other side. And so there was a total of five surgeries throughout this process. And I, I think that for me, I had never taken off more than six weeks from climbing for an injury. Um, maybe with my finger injury, it was actually one of the worst injuries that I had had prior to that. Um, and so I had to figure out what I was going to do. I had always had this passion for, as I mentioned earlier, like making my own bars and I had wanted to start this, this nutrition bar company. And so that was something that I kind of embraced head on and was like, if life has a way of, of working out for a reason and telling me something, now is the time to do it. And so I started embarking on that journey. Uh, I started writing my book because I studied nonfiction creative writing at Columbia. And I'd always wanted to write a book, but it never felt like the right inflection point. And I still, you know, wrestle with like, I'm not done with my career. And this isn't like an autobiography, but it's time to have a coming of age memoir that just kind of dives into where I'm at now. And it felt like a good time to do that. And writing's always been an outlet for me just to process through my thoughts. And 99% of the writing that I do is like just in journals that will never be seen. And then really focusing in on what I could control, like from the nutrition aspect to the PT, like I was, I mean, my PT exercises, I would do like three to five times a day. And I was just like, very, very committed to what does my body need? And going back to like, wrestling with disordered eating and my relationship with food, the injury actually set me up for success in that way because I started seeing my body as this incredibly 
resourceful, like remarkable thing that I could like literally knit myself back together having like had my abs taken out twice uh, or no, three times they're cut out because in three different surgeries and, and then just like seeing that my body could come back and like just be normal. Like my expectation of my body was just to walk again. It was like you, you kind of similar to our goal setting um, discussion at the top of this talk. Like some days it was just like being able to put on a sock, which like I couldn't do for a long time. Like even my fiance had to like carry me to the bathroom. It's one way to get really close to someone, go through massive injury. And I think focusing on what you can control, it's kind of like an expedition. Like when you're on an expedition, there are so many variables that you can't control and so much risk that you need to mitigate over what's rational fear, what's irrational fear, what are our conditions we're facing, how can we handle this, how do how do we best prepare our packs so that we're set up for success, and then all the training and, and kind of like under the hood work that goes in prior. And so I started to just kind of process this injury as a part of that. It was like, this is going to be my next climb. It's going to be like, just grueling and uncomfortable and all these things. But at the end of the day, I have to make the summit. And that that was different because obviously like with an expedition, if you can't make the summit, you can return. But through a recovery, like you, you have a one track mind. Like you're like, I'm getting through this. But yeah, it got dark in the way that physical exercise is the way that I deal with with like my mental anxiety and just process through thoughts and emotions and feeling pent up like in a in a cage for so long, basically nine months. It was pretty mentally challenging and it took a toll on on my like fortitude as just like seeing life as this optimistic thing. And and some days I woke up and I was like, I don't even see the point. Like I I can't wait for the day to be done. And so dealing with those thoughts and stuff, like working with therapists and a sports psychologist, I definitely leaned on my network. For instance, like Red Bull really stepped up in a really big way for me through this injury because the company provided me with nutritionists and a sports psychologist and all, all these kind of like tools for me to to work with that I could I could kind of like grow as a human through the process. What a moment to take a step back and look at the network of people around you who want you to succeed and be like, wow, how lucky am I that I have these people, these resources, this stuff. Although, like you're saying in the darkness, sometimes it's really, really difficult to take that perspective. Yeah, it was redefining my identity. For 23 years of my life, I had been a climber and that's what my profession has been and still is. And and to be like, well, I'm, I can't even be a normal human. I can't even walk. And understanding that that's just like a current season and not your forever. But I, I mean, now I just, I, I take everything with so much more gratitude. We forget it. Like I remember the days when I was like, I would do anything to walk. And now, you know, I walk around and like, have a bad day at the gym. And I'm like, damn it, I suck. Um, And then remembering like, no, I'm so grateful to be here and to be like, able to be challenging my body again, and to be like, doing like sports in general, that that's when I look at my body and think like, how could I have ever starved you? Like you have like been there for me, you've 
you built yourself back up, like all these things so that I just appreciate myself better. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be conscious of your time. So I'm going to start to wind us down here. Earlier, I asked you what you see when you look in the mirror and we didn't quite get to that answer. So talk to us. Talk to me about Sasha. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see staring back at you? I know I deflected you. I heard you. I, I see I see someone who works really, really hard and who's who's committed to finding out what's possible. I guess I look in the mirror and I'm like, how did we get here? <laughs> um, not that I'm like at some like pinnacle of success or anything. I just like, how did we get to this point that you get to do everything that you love every single day and you're you're paid to do this passion? Um, and that's where I'm just like, let's keep going. Like, like, let's keep pushing and working hard and, and showing up and finding out. And that's like a, such a good takeaway though, is that you don't like work hard and get to this point where you've accomplished some of your goals and you're like, okay, cool. Like I did it. We're good now. That is really when the work really begins. Wouldn't you agree? Totally. I mean, it, it's like the point at which you can recognize how much you want to work and work hard. I, I think it's like, it's a special realization because you start appreciating the grind. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And not to like, you know, glorify hustle culture, but more so just to be like, if you're willing to put in the work that won't guarantee without a doubt that you will succeed, but that's a lot closer to getting to success than the person that's just sitting on the couch wondering what if. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that the hustle is a big thing. Like, for my confidence and everything around, like whether I feel this imposter syndrome of what I think a lot of, of particularly women go through because there's no end of people saying, questioning whether you deserve what you have. Um, if you can stand on the legs of your hustle and know that you, you really tried hard, then there's kind of like, I, I always kind of wrestle with this idea of like finding balance because I, I don't necessarily know if like I find balance in my life. I think I like manage the chaos and I balance my priorities. And I don't know if I have like a balanced lifestyle, but I love it. Like I love being busy and being in the thick of it. And I, I do definitely value like taking care of your mental health and um, taking time to rest more so than ever after going through this last two years. But I think that it has to be coupled with the hustle and it has to be coupled with like just going full on, like trying and going into the unknown and challenging your comfort zones. So all of that, it, it just kind of all has to be there. If you reflect quickly thinking about your current state and the hustle and perhaps at times that lack of balance, what could be one thing that you could add to your routine that you're not doing just yet that may help you get to a closer definition of balance? I meditated a lot through my uh, recovery process and it was almost like I dropped that off when... I was healthy again because my training schedule was back and I started traveling again and all this stuff. So meditation and visualization has definitely been like a very helpful tool for me to add to my toolkit. And I, I shouldn't abandon it when the going's good. And I'm like, a, I'm a big bath person. I do Epsom salts and baking 
powder. Yeah, baking powder. <laughs> I always mix the two up, but one of them activates the Epsom salts, baking powder. I'm all about that. So making more time for for baths would be a very um, recharging aspect <laughs> that I could add back in. We love that. It's like uh, you abandon the run warm up when your injuries go away. So I I hear that. Okay, Sasha, final question. Right now, you have an opportunity to offer yourself a piece of advice looking back during that nine month period when you could not do the thing that you love the longest time away from your sport since you started at six years old. What piece of advice do you offer yourself going through that hurdle moment now looking back on it? Be kind to yourself. I think that when I was going through um, just being totally flattened, it was hard for me to to really appreciate the motions of what was what was just necessary and and I would I would be pretty critical of my body and and feel useless. And now looking back, it was actually my body was working really really hard, and I could have appreciated it more. And I think that like the way that we talk to ourselves. Yeah. I've like seen the little like quotes and stuff on Instagram. They're like, talk to your body. Like you would talk to your best friend. That's really hard for me. It's really hard for me to do that, but it's something that's always in the back of my mind. That's like, I need to, to do a better job at. And I would definitely want to have been more kind to my body when it was like literally broken up into two halves into two halves. Well, I'm so grateful for your perspective. I, there's so many more things that I feel like you and I could talk about, and maybe we'll have to do a part two of this at some point, but I appreciate you, Sasha, let the hurdlers know how they can follow along with you, how they can keep up with you. Give us the details. Yeah, I know. I really appreciate you having me here. And, and likewise, I have so many questions for you. <laughs> You're such an inspirational woman. My Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, it's all the same. It's just at Sasha D. Julian. So you can find me there. I'm over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.